Welcome back to Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and usually I'm joined by the weaker vessel, my wife Erica, but this week I am hanging out with an old Bible college buddy, and like last week she had her ladies episode, this episode will be just the dudes. So anyway, the guest today is Jacoby Nelson, as I said, a friend from Bible college, what, 10, 11, 12 years ago, almost now. And um, we're about to talk about some controversial topics throughout the uh, reformed world. But uh, anyway, Jacoby, how you doing? Hey, hey, I'm good. Awesome. Just, yeah, I'm good, man. Yeah, actually, I think I graduated in 2007. Okay. So over 13 years ago. Yeah, I graduated December... 2008. Uh-huh. So, so, yeah, slightly after me. Yep. You already had a bit of Bible college under your belt when we met. So, okay. Yeah. We got to tell some stories because we haven't talked in a long time, but this this might just be funny to reminisce. Uh, yeah, one second. I'm just making sure I got all my... Okay. All right. Good. There we go. All right. I'm good. Cool. Okay. So... I have one memory from you for some reason that really sticks out in my mind. And this is your, uh, <laughs> your pre-reform days. I'm pretty darn sure. Um, probably. I, I, yeah. I think, I think we met my first semester, so I was definitely not reformed right. then. Yeah. My, 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 my journey, actually my fourth semester, I was still undecided, but definitely leaning reform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and several of my buddies were like, I remember a friend coming to me with this Puritan book saying, look here, it's talking about how God's not knocking on the door of our heart, begging for us to accept him, but he's the sovereign God. And, you know, like we're at his, uh, mercy. He's not at our mercy. And I just, you know, so mind blown. Yeah. You're, you just start thinking about things from these different angles and, um, so yeah i was heavy in questions and then when we went to sign the graduation document it had something in there comparing calvinism to fatalism and Mm. limited atonement to fatalism and i said well i i can't sign that because that seems disingenuous to me i mean if they had tried to accurately represent it then i would see i would see it but it seemed like a huge straw man so they had a thing where you know, I'd worked my heart out at Bible college because I was 26 years old and my whole life I'd been a total screw up. So I wanted to finally accomplish something. I wanted to finally do something right with yeah. my life. <laughs> so I worked super hard and then to think, oh, now I won't be able to graduate. But uh, they had a stipulation where if you wrote a paper, why you wouldn't sign uh, yeah. one part of it. So what I basically did is I wrote like half a page explaining that I thought it was a straw man. And I printed up like 20 pages of verses from the monergism website (laughs) and I stapled it to it. That's legit. Yeah. And then after I left, I listened to MacArthur's five point thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I read the books like Against Calvinism and For Calvinism and, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Norman Geiser's book and James White's book on the on the issue, and then I listened to uh, uh, Arturo Arturo Azurdia had a five point mm-hmm. series on tulip 
and uh the, he he said something in there that just really got me and and it was that uh arminianism uh stands or falls on the hinge pin of pre, of the doctrine of prevenient grace Mm-hmm. And that this doctrine is nowhere supported in Scripture. And there's a couple verses that make a stab at it, but they're really weak, in my opinion. So that was kind of like the nail in the coffin for me. Yeah. In my early stages of changing my mind and saying, okay, yeah, I'm I'm a Calvinist, and yeah. So that was my journey in a nu- in a really really quick nutshell. But yeah. So the story with you that I had was our. You know how in Bible college they give us all eight hours of uh, work we had to do. What did they yeah. call that? M M one ninety nine. M one ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. So That's awful. Yeah, you were in <laughs> landscaping. Oh Lord. And yep. you were messing around with a shovel. And I don't know how this conversation started, but I randomly came up to you, and somehow we got started talking about finding the will of God for our life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been reading up on this from more of a reform perspective about, you know, using principles from the word and praying for wisdom instead of getting like some subjective word of knowledge or something like some people might do. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned that to you and you looked quite upset with me actually. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, <laughs> it's cause that's not what Calvary teaches. Right. And you're, you were like, you know, pushing your shovel in the dirt and you're like, well, I prefer, I prefer to pray and ask for the will of God. And I, and you were like perturbed. And I was like, okay, crap. I just took this guy off. <laughs> well, listen, and, uh, if it's any consolation, I probably just hated landscaping. I probably maybe. was bothered by what you were saying. Yeah. But I hated landscaping so much that maybe it wasn't uh, all you. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, but I, I did. Yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. So for some reason that's always stuck with me. And then, uh, you know, later on I can see that your theology was developing in similar paths to mine. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so right before Bible college, I had a boss, I did tile and he was the first person to my knowledge to actually ask me, um, Hey, uh, have you ever heard about the doctrine of predestination? And, you know, I'm, I have no clue. And he kind of shared a few things with me. And I think that was probably the first seed really that got planted in me. And then meeting people like you and at Bible college is funny because you always knew who like the couple of Calvinists were. And uh, because they were like, oh, don't talk to them. You know, their theology is, you know, off the rails, but we'll, we'll pray for them and love them. Really? uh, Oh yeah, there. I I couldn't name them now, but but there was always like that handful of people that that you just knew were were Calvinists, and you know that's like anathema in Calvary Chapel, pretty much. So, well, I never um, fully took that label. I would just challenge people with questions and say that I, I lean that way, and then yeah. a lot of the questions I would have in class, I never felt like I got intellectually satisfying answers for. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. So, so, so funny story. I remember this is about you and you and this is not a conversation you and I had, but I remember being in the library and was doing some kind of homework and you were at one end. I was like in the middle or something. This is not a big library for all those listening or watching. Um, But 
you were talking to somebody and they were asking you questions about it, about what about free will or something like that. And I distinctly remember hearing you tell them, uh, well, Calvinists don't, and I can't remember if you referenced Edwards or Augustine, but I feel like you mentioned one of them, but you said, it's not that we don't have free will, but it's that our, our will is tainted by sin. And so mm-hmm. we just, we want the wrong things. Are we will, you know, the, the wrong things. And I, you saying that, that was the first time I ever heard that. I, I hadn't at this point listened to anything or read anything by Calvinist. So I just remember you saying that and that always stuck with me. So little did you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it gets more complex when you talk about libertarian free will and, and right. compatibilism, but that's mm. a simple thing is that it, it, we do make choices, but we just can't choose God without his grace. Yeah, exactly. Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Yeah. yeah so, well, good. cool. That's, that's cool. God, uh, God used me to plant a seed, I guess. Yeah, no, it was good. It was a positive influence. And then the next semester I did not do landscaping, um, but I did housekeeping, which I did like a lot more actually. But my boss there was uh, Abraham Julia. Do you remember Abraham? Uh, yeah, he's actually Ardito's buddy. Nice. And he yeah. he's obviously reformed. And uh, and he would ask me questions about certain scriptures and be like, is that really what that means? Or what do you think this verse means? And he would just kind of plant mm-hmm. those seeds in me as we're making beds and cleaning bathrooms and stuff. Well, he's actually Ardito's brother-in-law, not just oh, his really? buddy. Yeah. Okay. Our uh, David's married to his sister. Gotcha. So, yeah. or no, he's married to David's sister. <laughs> he's married to David's sister. I got it backwards. Gotcha. <laughs> or maybe they uh, married each other's sisters. No. <laughs> I don't think who knows? So. I, I have no idea. <laughs> but they. Right. Uh, but he was a perfect example of someone who was not like cage stage jumping on you, telling you you're, you know. A heretic or anything like that he was super patient but he's a gentle soul yeah but he was very uh precise and articulate and that was good that was that was a big influence in those mm-hmm. early days so anyway so if that is enough reminiscing well yeah uh, well i am a little bit in- interested in hearing some more of the bullet points of your journey okay. if you want to share those no, yeah, that's that's uh, like no problem. Your, your uh, you know, your story. Um, I I love to hear as much of it as you would like to share that you think would be edifying and beneficial to hear to kind of hear about the development of your theology because you were a little skinny kid with a <laughs> landscape shovel, and now you look like a sergeant and you're like making your kids read eight hours a day. Exactly. You're like Mr. Classical Homeschool Education. and So uh, yeah. at Bible College, I read Norman Geisler's Chosen But Free, and I read it trying to gather as much ammunition as I could against my Calvinistic friends. But the one thing I realized as I read that book was that Geisler's arguments required a whole lot more caveat and they required way more qualifications of certain scriptures rather than just letting the scriptures speak for itself. I realized Mm -hmm. that 
when he quoted James White in the book, um, I would agree with James White understanding interpretation of a bunch of these texts. And so I, I read that whole book and like, I tried to use it as ammo, but deep inside I was like, man, this doesn't even totally make sense. And I've always had, which I will praise Calvary Chapel for, but I've always had a deep desire to just be biblical, like let the Bible speak for itself and to use wisdom when it comes to, you know, outside sources interpreting it for me or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to always go with the, the guy who seems to be just letting the Bible speak for itself rather than adding in philosophy or whatever other discipline into the text and make it say something that doesn't seem like it's saying. Let me see how I can explain this to make it fit into yeah. my preconceived yeah, narrative. Well, yeah, basically. exactly. So uh, after I graduated, I was pretty much, um, I was just open to the idea. I was becoming a big fan of Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler. And what they gave me was a picture of a Calvinist that didn't always just preach tulip and the five points of Calvinism. They preached on parenting and marriage, and they preached through books of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And so I was like, okay, good, because I, for a while, thought that if you're a Calvinist, you need to just always be talking about Calvinism, <laughs> um, which I know is you know, <laughs> just a misunderstanding, but... Um, Thank God. <laughs> yeah, so, so I was like, okay, there's some good ones out there, and then I... Um, so I picked up J.I. Driscoll Packard. hardly ever talked about it. He had like a couple, yeah. mess, a couple messages where he went into it. But yeah. other than that, it never came up. I yeah, mean, not, I was I went to his church for six months, and most of the people I met weren't even Calvinists. Wow. Yeah. Well, a, a few of my friends were, but a lot of them weren't. What What an incredible legacy. <laughs> <laughs> well. There was uh, pros and cons. They had a lot of good stuff going on, and it's a real pity what happened. It no really kidding. is. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I picked up Packer's book on sovereignty and evangelism, or on evangelism and the sovereignty of God. I think it's what yeah, it's called. Yeah, that's a great one. That sealed the deal. I read that little book, and his ex explanation of the Bible just commands us to have faith in Jesus, but then at the same time, the Bible just tells us that it's by grace it is not by our own doing, and you just accept these two truths, and that's it. You don't have to, you know, find a way to explain one over the other. You accept both. He uses the analogy of an antinomy, um, and how, I think it's, he says how light, light can be particle and wave, but both are true, and both are true at the same time, and uh, yeah, I finished that little book, and I was just, this is, that was it. I'm like, I believe it. Reformed theology, these five points, Calvinism, it, it's just what the scripture says, and I'm not going to try to explain one over the other. And Packer is so eloquent. I was like, man, these writers are just richer and deeper than what I had been given at Bible college. So I was like, I want to go with this camp because the way they write is better. So well, he's highly the... influenced by the Puritans, who are some yep. of the most beautiful writers there are. And well, uh, most of the Calvary guys are trying to, they're writing like junior high level writing, just trying to appeal to a wide audience. Mm -hmm. That in and of itself isn't bad, but yeah. So at some point you crave to 
for something a little bit, I don't know, more myself. I'm, I guess, just speaking for myself, like I just listened to Paul Maxwell. I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, but man, this guy is like a mind machine. He's a, (laughs) he's a PhD and I don't know what I just got turned on to his videos, but this guy is brilliant. And, um, he was explaining, uh, basically compatibilism in the will and how two can be true at the same time, but he really breaks it down uh, very, very well on how this works in sanctification. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like I don't want just platitudes that make me feel better. Christian maxims that make me feel better, uh, you know, like fix your eyes on Jesus, stuff like that. Uh, I want, I want something that really, uh, is intellectually satisfying that gives my mind something to grab onto that logically makes sense. And I can practically implement in my life. I mean, I've, I've spent years of my life pondering over this question of uh, my will and whether I'm depending on Christ or depending on my own strength and how to Mm -hmm. fight sin and have it be the Holy spirit and not myself. And like really wrestling with these questions and finally, just yesterday, I heard somebody explain it um, in a way that made more sense than anything I've ever heard, you hmm. know. And so I just really uh, appreciate intellects that can parse these things yeah, and take sure. very complex things, of theology and the human soul, and and make them make sense and make yeah. them make sense with the whole of Scripture and uh so lately that's been my excitement about post post-millennialism because oh my okay. gosh it's just exciting because so many scriptures make so much more sense yeah uh it's yeah like i i finished this documentary the other day where doug wilson at the end is talking about how he became a post-millennialist and he said it was fun like he, <laughs> he was saying he's gone through other paradigm shifts but this is the funnest one And you don't accept it because it's fun. You accept it because it's true, but it is fun. Because when you start saying, wow, if I just believe what this verse says, as God said it, as he promised it, and believe it's true, Mm -hmm. and I don't have to spiritualize it, it's pretty exciting to think about. Like, I I walk down the street with a completely different attitude, thinking that when I evangelize someone, I'm not begging them to accept my God that I'm scared they're going to reject because everybody rejects God now. But I'm coming to declare to them the fact that Christ is currently king yep. and he wants to offer them eternal life and he demands their allegiance uh, and that and believing that someday uh, the majority of people will actually acknowledge that. That's right. amazing. Yeah. That's cool. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's uh, so I didn't well, mean to. No, no, I was just going to add on to that. Uh, studying the Bible should be fun. Like uh, right. learning new things about the Bible should be fun and it should be a joy, you know, not just a chore or, you know, a duty, though it is, but it should be fun. It should be. So it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well, that's a that's a different subject, I think. So I don't want to <laughs> uh, get too distracted. So uh, let's go back to your... Uh... Okay. Where were we? I just became a Calvinist. Oh, yeah. The evangelism <laughs> and the sovereignty of God. Yeah. You so just then, accepted John Calvin into your heart. 
pretty much. Yeah, exactly. That's what they would say. Um, so then, then you uh, went into cage stage or no? No, because I I didn't like that. I didn't like the couple of friends that did, and so they, you know, jumped jumped on me about it, and that's why I was like, well, I'm gonna go read Norman Geisler and fight you then, and I didn't like it. So I, uh, whenever I accepted, I was like, you know what, I am not gonna go charging after anybody about it if they want to talk about it. Then I'm more than happy to talk about it, and I'm not gonna talk about it like, well, that's what I believe. Like I'm gonna be sure in it so i'm gonna say well that's, i mean the bible says xyz i'm not gonna say you know well i think that verse says no no it's not about my opinion it's either what the scripture says and i believe it or not so mm-hmm. that was just kind of the way i went about it there and um did not want to cage stage anybody but then for like let's say shoot six seven six or seven years i ba- i basically would be a reformed baptist and uh, at Calvary, I would have been a pre-trib, pre-mill, you know, prophecy conference, uh, Tim LaHaye left updates. behind. Yes, all that. And over those years, I slowly saw that that did more damage than good. And so I kind of said, you know, I'm not really going to hold to that anymore, but I didn't know what. Uh, did you grow up in a Calvary church? Uh, since I was eight years old, yeah. So pretty okay. much. Because I originally came out of a Word of Faith church. Well, that's what I was at before Calvary. So, uh-huh. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then then my wife and I just, uh, I don't know, just started listening to some podcasts. And it's funny because it all kind of happened in the same like couple of months. We listened to a podcast of some Reformed Baptists, and they had a Presbyterian on their show to talk about baptism. And they had this guy on to present his view, and they were friends with him, um, but then to basically just lambast him and pick him apart. That was their whole thing. Like, they wanted to have him on, okay, present your view, and then we're just going to destroy it. But my wife was listening to it, and then I come in the room, and she says, "Um, you have to listen to this episode because I'm pretty sure I want to baptize our kids. And I was like, what? What is going on? And I had known that, you know, basically my whole Reformed heritage is, you know, paedo-baptist. Like, I knew this already, but I just never really went down the, uh, went down that road, I guess, to to figure it out. And this was more recently. Yeah, this is only three years ago. Because I actually remember talking to you about this. Yeah. Yeah. So, whoa, you went real fast. You went from paedo-baptist all the way to theonomist and like, six from zero to 60 and yeah like two no, seconds like, so that that <laughs> that happened I, I take it back i read one book um on on uh baptist covenant theology and again it uh-huh. was kind of like reading geisler like i just really wasn't convinced it was very technical but it just seemed like kind of dispensationalism dunked baptized into covenant theology it just seemed the same with different words um but anyway so pedo baptist but then at the same time my wife and i were listening to a different podcast and they were walking through um matthew 24 and these guys were partial preterists and post-millennial and they just explained it verse by verse showing how this is about the destruction of jerusalem not about you know the end of history and both of us at the same time were like, 
that makes perfect sense. Like I'm pretty sure we just became post millennial. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was only, that was like at the same time we were thinking about pedo baptism. And then those, uh, no, not those guys. I think I had a Christian rapper today. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but (laughs) told me that I challenged him because I kind of, I tried to go toe toe with him on, uh, eschatology last week. Mm -hmm. And I gave him some, some verses. I showed him how, this promise about Israel taking the the promised land was already fulfilled in Joshua Mm -hmm. and that under Solomon's reign, they already had this land that God had promised to Abraham. But, you know, with the Schofield study Bible, they come and try to say that this is still something future. Yeah. And that's actually why they have the two blue stripes on the Israeli flag. You know, it's from the river to, to the other river. Uh, Okay. Yeah. And, uh, Anyways, they just kind of blew me off. So I came back at Adam again <laughs> yesterday, kind of basically poking at him because they were telling people about go watch the RNC convention and the DNC convention, go watch all the speeches and then come back and talk to me. And I said, well, why don't you do the same thing with eschatology? And they're like, well, I've looked at post mill and all mill and they're just bad theology. It's just, you don't get it from from dem- like political oh, conventions it's from the I bible was like bad theology <laughs> oh, okay come on so anyways i gave him some points like look if you if you look at this text this game like seven points there's only you can't be dispensational you just can't no. that's like <laughs> so uh yeah they didn't um and then i gave them links to some resources but mm-hmm. anyway i just don't like it's not uh my my favorite thing to say now is uh condemnation without investigation is indoctrination because mm. it's just when you just accept with what you've always been taught what you believe for so long without giving the other uh views an honest look yeah you're you're just keeping it's a cultish mentality for sure and it's really hard i understand when like imagine being a reformed baptist but you actually have your uh, MDiv and you've been a pastor for 10 years and you realize your position is wrong. And I'm not saying credo or pedo is wrong or right. I'm just saying whatever. Let's say you've invested 10 years in a ministry and you realize your position is wrong and it can cost people a lot to admit that. So they are costing their job. Right. Right. Uh, Cost them job, respect, friendships even. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it's not, uh, but I've always just personally said, you know, I'm gonna whatever it costs me. I just want the truth. Yeah, yeah, I've sacrificed friends. I think for every every theological development, uh, my wife and I have gone through. There's been friends that we've lost or or whatever. It's, uh, it sounds sad, but I'm used to it now. It's like, oh well, I know this and this person will probably not like to talk to me anymore or whatever, but. Um, right. but yeah, like you said, you want to conform your, your views, your theology to the Bible and, and just, I just never want to stop doing that. So that's really all that is. Well, now your children, uh, I don't have children, but, uh, your children will be blessed, you know, to be raised with, in a home that had to wrestle through these things and figure them out. And, uh, uh, the only thing I worry about, I mean, um, God forbid, but when children are raised in a good Christian home, uh, 
seems like then a lot of them like there's even a book about this like the sons of the Ref- the scottish reformers i think mm-hmm. about how they all just went off yeah you know into the world and there's nothing you can guarantee that your uh children will walk with christ but there's things you can do to guarantee they won't course if you're living like a duplicitous life or anything but if they (laughs) have good christian parents like it looks like they have with you guys as far as i can tell on social media but (laughs) it's uh yeah like anyways (laughs) getting ahead of i'm getting ahead of myself but the, the it's just such a blessing to be able to grow up in a stable home with a mother and father with sound theology and have that all to be catechized and uh, to do it in a way that's alive and real and connects with the real world and the real life Mm -hmm. and actually, uh, helps them see how their worldview is the best and most superior worldview to have. Right. And to understand why. And, you know, it's not just rote, uh, rigid, dry, dead religion. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the answer, you know? Yeah. So that's all. That's really, really awesome that you're. Yeah, we're super blessed. That. And our kids, I mean, they love church. They hate when we have to miss it for any reason. And they, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the, the joy and love I see in them is what I do remember as a kid, whether it's watching Christian cartoons or going to church, hanging out with church friends or whatever. So I definitely watch that and, and praise God for it. So. And pray for them constantly because they're in God's hands, you know? Amen. So did you, I don't know if I finished my story, uh, but did you want to start getting into this uh, controversial stuff that you were Yeah, we're getting close to it. I kind of of touched on it. Um, uh, I hope I didn't offend you by saying the TH word. What? No, no, not at all. And that that (laughs) did come later. I, I I was thinking when you were talking... The paedo-baptism and post-millennial, post-millennialism did come pretty much at the same time, but then theonomy did come later. Yeah. And then once I once I jumped in that little pool, I realized it was much deeper than I thought. And and uh, and then still today, I'm reading things and thinking through things. And, and yeah, uh, so I'm excited to talk about it. Well, this is a complicated subject, um, to say the least. Yes, <laughs> I had a uh, there's a pastor facebook friend who said he had a witnessing op- opportunity with a guy at a store the other day mm-hmm. and i told him well i hope you told him about the theonomy not <laughs> 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 the first thing you want to talk about with an unbeliever uh but anyway exactly i mean even among believers it's like it's one of those um i would say misunderstood words that has that yeah negative stigma and people put a um like oh well just i have a friend who basically writ someone off is like he's a theonomist and i'm like well do you know what uh can you describe theonomy to me not really i just know it's bad yeah pretty much (laughs) exactly and I, I, i honestly didn't really know much about it or how to articulate it either I and mean, that's okay but it's not okay know, to uh dismiss a, it without a label as someone when you don't even know what it is yeah, just because yeah. someone else told you i actually knew Very john true. barrett like years ago oh really 
that yeah he was in southern oregon he had a church there for a while okay and uh a few guys i knew and my and myself sometimes would um uh, meet for coffee or go to over to his house they'd uh smoke pipes and we'd just like ask theology questions he's a brilliant dude yeah he he ended up in texas right i don't um so my pastor here in brooklyn um, basically recall. studied under him. I think he was um, like either on staff or was like a Sunday school teacher at his church while he was in seminary or something like that. But he knew John Barrett really well. Okay. Well, this was around the time uh, I knew him around the time when Doug Wilson had gone to the Desiring God conference. Okay. And so a lot of people were like, saying john why would you t bring doug wilson there mm -hmm. and i even bought a book at the desiring god conference when doug wilson was there that was anti-federal vision <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh and so then i'd go to john barrett and i'd like can you just tell me what all of this is about and uh he just he would you know, it's like you never really get like a straight, clear answer because it's such a complicated thing. Basically, yeah. what I was told is it's just it's a conversation among theologians. It involves uh, pedo communion, yeah. pedo baptism, uh, justification by faith alone. And then uh, I had a, another buddy at Westminster I'd met who was staunchly against federal vision. And uh, another friend who um, went to Sc uh, Scott Clark's church. Oof. Okay. Yeah. So he's like the most outspoken opponent. I guess. Yeah. Any, it's like any chance he. Yeah. Any chance he gets, he he attacks it. Even no one, people could be no one could be talking about it, but he'll attack it. Yeah, I actually just read an article on it by Stephen Wedgworth, mm -hmm. saying how Scott Clark is basically it's basically like. Um, re it's reductionistic. He's reduced it to something that it's not, and he and it just keeps beating on that straw man mm -hmm. and accusing people of being federal vision that aren't federal vision. Yeah, that even couldn't possibly be federal vision, right? Like Baptists. Yep, like <laughs> Baptists and uh, like yeah, like James White and John Piper, Jeff Durbin and John Piper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So what are your questions to lead into this topic of federal vision? Well, how did, uh, so how did you, what was the next progression in your theological progression? What happened next? How did so you? So we, my wife and I, we ended up joining, uh, because we're Pado baptists we're Presbyterian now. We ended up joining a PCA church and the pastor there, um, actually told me that if I, thought that God was calling me into ministry and that I was going to be doing ministry in Presbyterian world that I need to know what federal vision is. And, mm -hmm. and he's, you know, on paper, uh, admittedly, he's not federal vision, but because there was such a big controversy, he told me you need to know what it is and not just enough to say, I disagree with it or that it's bad, but you really need to know why. So that sent me on, uh, journey to learn what this thing is. And kind of like with Calvinism, the more I read about it, the more it seemed to uh, be right there in Scripture. And even though it was very controversial, and I realized that, um, 
you know, reading these guys and liking their stuff was going to basically cut off a whole lot of the Presbyterian world because it had become such a controversial thing. Um, so maybe, maybe because I didn't grow up Presbyterian, I didn't grow up deeply rooted in those denominations that I didn't feel like I needed to, uh, oppose it. But Pado communion seemed like a pretty easy thing to accept when, if my kid through baptism is made a member of the covenant, then, and all covenant members partake of the Lord's supper of the meal, then, then, if, then they should be at communion. Like it just made perfect sense to me. Um, the passages in first Corinthians about discerning the body and that sort of thing made a lot more sense when I heard them explained as talking about discerning the body, meaning the body of Christ, not the body and the bread. And then, um, you know, you get into a weird rabbit hole when you talk about, um, well, it says you have to examine yourself. Well, okay. Uh, what does that really mean? Does that mean you have to examine your internal motivations? And if you had any sin within the last 30 minutes or an hour or a day or whatever, and then only if you know for sure you're clean, you get to <laughs> you get to take the supper? Or does it mean examine the body around you, examine yourself and make sure you're not the person who's getting drunk at the supper. Make sure you're not the person who's cutting out a member of the church body, which is what they were doing in Corinth. Uh, yeah, from people. what I read, they were actually, uh, like, the people that had more bread weren't sharing. Right. And <laughs> with the poor, and they were yeah. even getting drunk on the wine. I mean, these are like overt, disrespectful acts that you would never mm -hmm. see in a church service today. So it's, yeah. yeah. So, But it was funny that what, what was their argument uh, against, um, having kids at the table with you was was exactly the same problem is that they were by their argument excluding a portion of the body they were they were doing that they were creating mm. different groups within the body and i know church history is totally back and forth with this um a lot of the early church fathers some of them kids had communion some didn't some didn't get baptized till way later some baptized you know babies um and, and it's like all over the place, really, if you look into the history of of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But when you so that's why federal vision is a covenant theology question. Once you uh, once you realize kids belong in the covenant, nowhere in the New Testament has God, you know, excluded kids from the covenant. If if the Bible is connected, if from Genesis to Revelation, it is all one book, then kids belong in it. Kids belonged in the nation of Israel, which was expanded and now includes all nations, right? So if kids were included then, why wouldn't they be now? If the covenant is better now, then how come now a portion of the people are cut off? Um, so a lot of these things mm -hmm. um, that they were saying, I was like, pretty sure. Like I'm the church didn't begin vision. at Pentecost. The church began with Adam and Eve. Yeah, and now the Gentiles have been grafted in, mm -hmm. so it it seems consistent to me. I I'm I'm currently undecided because just because yeah. I haven't dug into that issue on communion, but it it does seem like a natural progression for me. Uh, as far as the communion goes, I think what's most 
um, I'll try to explain it as I understand it and correct me if I'm wrong. So like within evangelical evangelicalism uh, for churches that actually teach the gospel, you have a mm -hmm. low church and high church. You know, the low church is more kind of contemporary in their style, more mm -hmm. loose. And the high church is more formal, yeah. Lutheran, Anglican, you know, uh, serious yeah. reformed churches. And then below them, you'd have PCA and then reformed Baptists. So like, and then, um, then you got up here, like Eastern Orthodox and Catholic. Yeah. But they kind of crossed the chasm on you know, the doctrine central to the gospel, like justification by faith alone, penal right. substitutionary atonement, imputation, and propitiation. So, or on propitiation, I'm not sure, but yeah. those three, at least. And so, then you have this uh, discussion with, it goes back to the guy named Norman Shepard, yep. who was teaching a thing called obedient faith mm -hmm. and then it, they were began others began believing in a thing called monocovenantalism yep and i think this is where kind of the heart of the controversy lies is with monocovenantalism and and this concept of obedient faith or justification by faith alone and it kind of gets muddled in between this high church reformed high church and catholicism kind of somewhere in between that chasm yeah because they you would have... they would lay out like you know like if the catholic church has all these different sacraments and they have penance and all this kind of stuff that seems to this seems to sound like okay well if you're obedient in your faith that's what makes you righteous and then the it seems that the reformers come at the opposite and say, no, it's just faith. That is what makes you righteous. Right. And so you, you, when you hear a federal vision person, um, like Norman Shepard, well, he wasn't federal vision. He wouldn't, I, I no, he wasn't, but he yeah. had influence Forerunner. on kind of the beginnings <laughs> of it, I guess some yeah, of the yeah. ideas. So what, what I wanted to finish up saying was, so in that chasm yeah. down closer to the bottom, closer to reform you had a guys like doug wilson and then you had different guys kind of scattered throughout with different differing mm -hmm. views yep. it was more like a stream of of guys thinking and writing and and trying to i guess develop this mm -hmm. progressive movement that ended up fizzling out yeah and then but more towards the top closer to the catholic uh version you had peter lightheart and uh, james jordan i think so um, and then there and then also in this conversation come guys like Gary North and Rush Dooney and David Chilton. I'm not sure exactly how they relate to uh, Federal Vision, but um, among the theonomists, it seems to me, because I'm just starting to you know uh, look into this stuff, mm -hmm. per, you know, per relatively recently, but. Gary North and and Rush and he seemed the most controversial. I like on the Wikipedia page, I guess Van Til pretty much said, "No, I don't have anything to do with these guys." Hmm. Uh, more or less, I can look up the exact wording, but he made some yeah. kind of statement. But it's Wikipedia, so you gotta you never know. <laughs> you gotta confirm. <laughs> yeah. Well, the 
what the Federal Vision thing was a lot about, this is what I have gathered, and I know if anyone is listening to this who knows more than I, um, I'm sorry if I sound ignorant, but what it seemed to me was that they were trying to recover an objectivity of the covenant where the person truly in front of you is a Christian and that our Christian faith is not just a subjective thing. And you can trace this back to the temptation, the the ever-present temptation of Gnostic tendencies, where we kind of want to have this higher knowledge that's out there in the spiritual world rather than what is material and what's right in front of you. And so what you see with, um, and this is where maybe Puritan movement went wrong, was that there was an overemphasis on like your personal spiritual um, regeneration and experience of the Holy Spirit, which is a thing you can't see, right? And then mm-hmm. you end up getting a lot of people who are like the second great awakening was awful. There's a lot of people just generating crazy emotions and that became your faith was your experience rather than what are the actual signs that God's given you, baptism, Lord's Supper, that is what should tell you, I'm a Christian close to God. Those, those things, those physical things, um, the body of Christ and that sort of thing. Um, the the whole invisible, vis, uh, visible church dichotomy. That's another thing that people will a lot of times overemphasize, and Calvinists do this too much, where they talk only invisible church, only election in the in the unknown mystery mystery realm and and neglect to really talk about the the elect people of God the church it's it's usually individual and i think what a lot of this guys james jordan and a lot of the christian reconstruction guys were trying to recover a a, a corporate, corporate mindset with uh the people of God and have it not be so individualistic now, like Doug Wilson always says, there's a ditch on either side of the road. You can go too far on the corporate and the material and the the here and now visible side of it, which would be, like you said, the high church, the Catholic and stuff, um, Eastern Orthodox and high church Anglican. Or you can go on the other ditch where it's all invisible, it's personal, individual, and um, you know everything is just... Uh, five points of Calvinism, basically. No no sacraments and all that kind of stuff is neglected. And you see that with a lot of um, probably like 1800s uh, reformed circles where things like the sacraments and stuff like that get largely neglected. Now, they may have been fighting other fights, and I'm getting into other stuff now, um, but but you do see that the kind of like church liturgy and church life in that way is sort of neglected over over against other things but um but really the objective subjectivity is is what they were trying to recover some some part of that objectivity what i prefer to do is to really try to keep the both hand in hand all the time god is sovereign and in control and he rules everything and it, it is a mystery but at the same time, you call your fellow Christian to repentance, to use wisdom in their life to make decisions, and live out your life here on the ground with dirt and air in the physical world, 
But at the same time, you always know that God's in control. He's sovereign over all things. And uh, I don't know, keep those two running parallel all the time. Because there are some in this Federal Vision controversy that I think have gone too far to, to say things like, you know, you are regenerated in your baptism, right? Like that's an over-objectification of baptism, right? But at the same time, um, I would say that baptism is a means of regeneration, that it is something that the Holy Spirit uses to work in someone's life, but it's not the only means. Preaching, obviously, is a means of, you know, prayer. There's other things that God uses in our life to bring about new birth. Um, I don't know where to go from here, but the uh, if you want to um, jump in. Okay, well... So part of the controversy, I got a couple notes here. So part of the controversy was the, like the pedo communion thing, obviously, I think their concern was, are we over promising? Are we telling these kids more than we should, right? We're telling them they're a covenant member and they have full rights to everything. Well, a lot of mainstream evangelicalism has a completely different concept of what communion even is. Yep. Well, that's true too. I mean, I guess both would agree that it's a uh, a that we're doing it in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice. But what I re always remembered was pray, examine yourself if you have sin in your heart. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even if you had like a grievance against someone who was in that room, you might even go talk to them and ask for their forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I've experienced that with people a couple of times. Uh, you know, it's just a, um, I guess, like, in my opinion, it's just kind of modernized. Let's see how we can package this and mm -hmm. get people in and out of our service comfortably. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and instead of coming together in corporate worship with, this is one thing that I've grown to appreciate about more of a high church liturgy mm -hmm. is, um, like if you go into a Lutheran church, everything has meaning where, yep. where every yeah. piece of furniture is positioned and the order which they do the service, everything has a symbolic meaning to it. And that's very worshipful, I think, if you understand it and right. if you can appreciate that. And so, I, but I think with, you know, what people try to do is say, how can you get more people in the church and they swing you know, too far to the other side of the pendulum. And it's like, I actually remember having a discussion with you on, on Facebook about this, where you, you'd posted something about how church isn't about entertainment. Yeah. And I, you know, I've said the same thing before in the past and, and I, and I, you know, I could be, you know, correct. I could be wrong, but my thoughts are that we, uh, should entertain in a different sense though not in the sense that the contemporary mainstream evangelical church tries to entertain to like they're asking what will people like like what will unregenerate people like in church right. and how can we entertain them 
-hmm. When I say entertain, like, for example, I believe it was Piper talked about how Jonathan Edwards in his early days would try to speak monotone and without eloquence. And later in life, he realized that he should change this um, to because like Piper says, my goal in a sermon is to raise the affection of my hearers towards Christ. And I believe that beautiful language, um, uh, passion, sincerity, or um, I have this great quote right here where I put it. It's from John Owen. He says, if the word does not dwell with power in us, it will not pass with power from us. And then Samuel Rutherford said something like, if we have all these flowery words, but don't have the the Holy Spirit, if we haven't bathed our sermon in prayer, it's just flowers on a casket. Mm-hmm. And like, this is not, um, I guess this is entertainment's the wrong word, but what I mean is to conduct your church service and your preaching in a way that penetrates the whole soul of a man mm-hmm. that appeals to their senses, to their eyes, to their ears, and helps them worship with their whole being. Yeah, And I think in a Reformed church, we tend to lean towards helping people worship with their mind. Right. The abstract. Yeah. And then, and that, well, not necessarily abstract. Uh, it could be just logic that's, uh, you know, very practical even, but it's more uh, intellectual, I guess. And then, um, you know, and then in more charismatic churches or low church style services they're appealing more to experience and emotions Mm -hmm. and experience and emotions of god are can be real and they are actually important i believe um the thing the only thing with them is they're unreliable (laughs) we don't make them like our plumb line for truth right uh and we don't put all our trust in them but we should i think desire to have an experiential encounters with god like um, Jonathan Edwards' wife talks about lying on her bed and not able to get up. Hmm. And I'm like, what does this mean? This sounds <laughs> like somebody getting slain in the spirit or something. And right. this was during the Great Awakening. But, you know, I, I still don't know quite what to make of that. But anyways, my point is that, um, uh, for example, nowadays we can use technology um, I think it would be great if denominations could come together like like when the great divines came together and had a council and they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith. If we could, I mean, right now there's this huge, so many schisms in the church, and now we have this critical race theory going on. Man, it's just poison. And, it, oh man, this. It's so, so sad. Well, yeah, one of one of the things that I appreciated um, about the Federal Vision guys was this thing uh, of reformed Catholicity. Okay. They they didn't see themselves as like the true reformed camp. They just saw themselves as another stream within the reformed camp, and they they you know they kind of gave latitude to people who disagreed. And James Jordan actually talks about this a lot. If you listen to him um, in interviews, he says when he was in seminary, I guess it was the 70s, um, that there were people from Dutch Reformed, 
and from the Presbyterian Church, and they were from all these different uh, streams of Reformed theology, and they all got together, they bounced ideas off each other, and there was a lot of uh, fruitful work, and he always points to all these guys, these uh, Dutch Reformed guys, and uh, like Hebden Taylor, who I haven't read anything yet, but he's like an Anglican who was very Reformed, and all this kind of stuff, and they were writing good stuff, and then he said that since that time, since the 70s going into the 80s, it seems like the Reformed Church, mainly mostly in America where he is, has like more and more closed its mind and continues to shut off um, like differing ideas. You just shut them out. They're not you, so shut them out. And now you have today like the R. Scott Clarks who whittle everything down to one thing and then you know, if, if you say, you know, if you're that one person, they denounce you over and over again. And then what he does is denounces everybody that you do any ministry with. And, uh, or even if you change your mind, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You said it at one point, can't trust you. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I really appreciated that of these guys. And so Lightheart and Jordan and even Doug Wilson and stuff, I saw them doing ministry with people who are either Baptist or Anglican or um, like Lightheart has written commentaries in in commentary series where there's other Catholics and stuff doing work in there. And um, he finds ways to be able to do ministry where it's still fruitful and helpful. Um, it's not that he agrees with them fully, but that that's like the thing we've lost. We've lost this ability to do work with somebody but also not see it as a full endorsement of them either. Well, um, I just read a blog by Doug Wilson where he's actually critiquing Lightheart. Uh, well, yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, but he seems to actually leave a lot of ambiguity about the Catholic Church himself. Yeah, that's the funny thing is that um, Doug Wilson is pretty... Uh, how shall I say it? He's pretty sure in his beliefs and where he stands with things. But then like a James White will critique him and say, you know, how can you give so much credit to uh, G.K. Chesterton, who is a Catholic or or whatever? And James White and Doug Wilson had a good talk on that. And um, anyway, but you see Doug Wilson work with Baptists a lot. You know, he goes on Apology Radio a lot. Um, you mentioned him going to Desiring God, but anyway, there's... Well, he's. I'm okay with Doug Wilson uh, now after doing my own digging, mm-hmm. and what I'm really wondering about is, I find, I just read a book uh, by uh, Rush Tooney, it's just a short book, but really interesting, it's on Revelation, yeah. it's called God's Plan for Victory, or it's about post-millennialism. Oh, yeah. And uh great book, really great. I listened um, to the audio book, but it was a while okay. ago. And I really like this idea of the soft theonomy with the general equity being carried over because right. if you understand Old Testament, New Testament continuity, and you understand that God's law is perfect and eternal, but you also understand that it applies contextually to the society, there's still eternal principles there that apply for all time. Mm-hmm. And that guide us in how to love God and love neighbor. Right. And 
uh, I just, I came to these conclusions on my own, just from reading the Bible. And we were preaching through Mark at church, and I was studying the gospel of Mark, and I realized Jesus was preaching the gospel before he was crucified. Yeah. He said straightway he declared the good news. And I started meditating on that, and I, and I realized he was coming to declare that the king had come. His kingship was now. And then you get into the kingdom parables. And I started, it talks about the mustard plant. It's not a tree. It's a plant that mm -hmm. grows like a weed and it grows up to eight feet tall. They're all over Southern Cali now. Mm -hmm. And um, it says the birds of the air come and rest in its branches. And then I'm reading through the com a couple of commentaries tell me these birds in Old Testament symbolism represent evil rulers. So I began to think about how Christ and uh, the principles through the church that have been, you know, preserved through the church and through the Reformation have influenced the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, um, I'm not saying that U.S. Constitution is a divine document by no means. <laughs> but uh, anyways, my point is that these principles have preserved society as it is. Yeah. And if we didn't have it, if we had just this um, other Hegelian dialectic wars going on between fascists and socialists and communists and whatever else is mm -hmm. there is, uh, without this um, principles that have brought what freedoms we do have, um, it, it would be chaos in the world. So I think we're all benefiting. I don't want to use the word common grace but this common goodness that we've mm -hmm. all, all received from God and we've all benefited from. And I don't think it's done yet. If you see how much the, this, this message has uh, spread throughout the world, Jesus said that the kingdoms of this world would not prevail against it. And imagine that Christianity's still around <laughs> and, and doing well. My pastor, so, on that note about the, the goodness kind of spreading all over the world and that effect happening. Uh, my pastor brought this up some weeks ago and he said, you know, you see the gospel affecting the world in that, you know, 1500 years ago, a debate over how we gave money to the poor would have been unthinkable. Mm -hmm. Right. 1500 right. years ago, I'd been kill the poor, leave them over there. Don't, we don't care about them. What do you mean? Give them money and provide them housing or whatever. And then now we're on this end of things. And it, the debate is how do we do that? You know, do we right. do that by charitable or, or taxes or, you know, now we're debating just how we do that. Not if we should. It's, and that's, that's the, the effect yeah. of the, you know, the gospel and Jesus kingship spreading. It's such a profound effect. So I started to think about this, and and I was like, well, Christians would say, well, I don't want to get into politics. And I was like, well, Jesus is a king. <laughs> it doesn't get any more political than that. Every time the and, New Testament says Jesus is Lord, that was a political right. statement. Right. And I just came to these conclusions on my own. I didn't read any post-millennialist books or theonomist books. It was mm -hmm. just reading through scripture and thinking about it because I have a pretty... You know, I'm I'm kind of ADHD scatterbrained. I don't have recall like Tim Keller does. I can't remember every. I don't have a photographic memory, uh, but I am able to connect the themes through Scripture and you know know where 
things are and the, mm -hmm. the concepts and how they logically uh, connect together in sound ways. And I just started to see this. And then when I understood about the uh, general equity of these eternal principles from God's word. And so then I, now I formulated a thing which, so there, uh, a friend of mine started to confuse me with a dominion uh, theologians. Yeah. Are you familiar with those guys? Not very familiar. I know people confuse theonomists and dominion theology right. sometimes. Well, I looked into a little, they're Pente like Pentecostal yeah. charismatics who think we're supposed to subdue the earth, which I believe is actually true. Yep. Um, and some girl had a vision that there were seven hills that the church is supposed to infiltrate. And it's like business, politics, entertainment, media, mm. um, education, and two others. I don't remember off the top of my head. But actually, um, so they say, well, as post-millennialists, I'd be curious to hear what you say about this. As post-millennialists, we come from the bottom up, not from the top down. So right. we're not trying to like, but this doesn't make sense to me. Because if now, if you're trying to... Um, if you're trying to bring impose on culture from the top down Christian ideals or Christian mm -hmm. legislation, like uh, to to force it, but if people are being born again and their hearts are transformed, yeah. and then those people are going to go out in the world and they're going to run businesses and make money and be able to influence politics, and more yep. and more our legislation would become Christian. It yeah, would become more pleasing to God, it would become right. less idolatrous. Yeah. So this would be like, you can't really not bring it from top down, you would end up having Christians in entertainment, writing novels, right? Christians on YouTube, creating stuff, you'd have Christians everywhere doing things in the real world. So it's not a top down or bottom up. It's yeah, yeah, some Christians preach the gospel, and other Christians go and work their job as a lawyer. Like, look mm -hmm. at Jonathan Edwards' kids. Exactly. They were all teachers, lawyers, politicians, mm -hmm. and judges, I think. Yeah. So, and these Senators were and everything. Yeah. Post millennialists. It's like, it, it's so, anyways, I think the Dominion theologians actually got that part right. And that's probably controversial, and maybe somebody will show me how I'm wrong. But, um, but well, they just I, got their, they I just think, got all their other theology wrong. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think the problem, everything else. I think the problem they would run into is they'd be like a dog chasing a fire truck. They would catch it and then be like, "Oh, what do I do now?" Because if if you're not a theonomist, and this is where postmillennialism and theonomy usually goes together, is that once you do become that Christian senator. Well, what do you do? You got to have some sort of standard that you apply at your job. And so that's where that general equity comes in. Okay, well, when I pass a law or as I'm voting yay or nay for these laws, as a Christian, they should match up with biblical principles found in the law of God and, and everywhere else um, in Scripture. And your so that, Christian worldview, if you have a robust yeah. and consistent Christian worldview, right. will inform everything else in, in life. Right. And so... Yeah, that you know that that's kind of where those go hand in hand. Uh, yeah, I, the Dominion theology would not. I don't think. I just could be wrong. I haven't really looked into it. I don't think they would adopt, you know, the Mosaic Law as kind of a principled framework for how to do politics right. or how to do public policy. Right. No, I I don't know. 
I don't know what they do. They pray in tongues <laughs> and march around buildings or something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I flags. Know. Yeah, for sure. But but, um, but I heard um, uh, one guy uh, say that we don't go, come from the top down, but at the same time he was praising um, Ali Beth Stuckey or just basically saying how much mm-hmm. they appreciate what she does. And she's a political commentator. Yeah. A Christian. So that's that in itself is top down. That's I mean, she's not like in a position of authority, but that's speaking, having cultural influence Mm -hmm. by not only preaching the gospel, she's commenting on politics. So in a sense, that's Christian infiltration into this, into the world. Well, and I think you'd agree, like, I guess what we don't do top down is coerce, though, that that is not a biblical way of uh, bringing about you know, the lordship of Jesus in our world is by coercion or force or, or by the sword. Right. No, but by, uh, but by wisdom, like for, Mm. I think actually, um, if I, I really wish more scholars and pastors, um, I wish I could have just 30 minutes with all the greatest theologian (laughs) minds and just say this and, and, and ask them, just get in their ear and say, let's do this. (laughs) let's get the money because if um well the thing is is this kind of a catch-22 because money and power corrupts but uh nowadays we have technology to decentralize money and Mm -hmm. we could actually if we're serious about it decentralize power but if we could decentralize money because money issuance the whole federal reserve concept is keynesian which is socialist at its Mm -hmm. roots yep and then the graduated income tax is socialist policy also. And this is run by foreign bankers, international mm-hmm. bankers, who have their fangs and everything in oil. In, uh, they were doing weather stocks and weather manipulation. Yeah. Uh, there was a huge scandal about that. These guys you know, buy up natural resources and commodities and real estate, and they try to get to who they want in, in political office, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. They're playing these games and mm-hmm. uh, these huge power games. And the dollar is the central, you know, like the economic, um, I don't want to say pillar, but kind of at the center of, uh, yeah. g- of global economics. And, and China and, and Russia and Brazil are trying to do away with that. But guys in Israel are really... Um, or guys in the city of London who are connected to Israel are really have a big, big piece of the pie in the federal reserve. Mm. And this uh, goes into lobbying Mm -hmm. politicians, you know, they're big pharma, big pharma came out of Rockefeller who's big oil. Now the big oil guys are coming with their green new deal. And like Doug Wilson says, you know, like Satan likes to come and, uh, basically have global dominion to try to set himself up as God. And he tried to do this with the third Reich, but God doesn't allow it because Satan's bound. And if you look at the statue in, in um, Daniel, how it was Babylon, the Persians, the the Greeks and the Romans, and then the rock smashed it. And then that rock grew into a mountain and covered the earth. Well, no more are we going to see an empire of that magnitude, right? But he's trying to do it again. Now, I believe through the UN, agenda of agenda 21 mm-hmm. so um sounds like conspiracy theory stuff but it's a 200 and something page document that anybody can read 
and it's very socialist, socialist and that basically all the oil tycoons that got filthy rich off capitalism want to forever eliminate competition, move everybody into these major cities and deindustrialize the world. So everyone will have, you know, this patch they're talking about with gates where they can track you. It has all your identity information, your currency information. You'll probably use it to vote on some kind of blockchain. And, you know, you will be a, a slave at the state of the state. And as long as you do act and live how they want you to do, you might be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I believe this is what their Satan is, uh, as the, as mocking God as a parody of God, he wants to expand his kingdom, but I, I believe it will fall, but it won't fall by Christians pretending it's not there and just reading theology books. It'll be about right. Christians fighting it through prayer and through awareness and taking action against it. And if we really realized that we could have so much influence on the minds of children by infiltrating, not by force, by teaching. If we can get in the schools, if we could control the media, if we could get rid of pornography, they're trying to tear apart the nuclear family structure Mm -hmm. with pornography, with gay marriage, with the LGBTQ agenda. It's in every seeking Netflix show and every movie. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And uh, this all, this all, if you go back to the roots, it goes back to bankers. It goes back (laughs) to the big money, to big tech, to big oil, because that's how you can influence the world. So if the church could get the money, but not let it corrupt them, keep it decentralized, the, 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 the use of it, among a large board of elders or something like that. And so, and we have the technology to do it now with cryptocurrency. It's just that people don't understand it enough. So uh, anyways, that's what I would say. If I could get all those eggheads in one room, I was like, let's get the money. Cause then we can influence the world through media and education and politics. Yeah. Well, and, and stop a bunch of wars while we're at it. True. Yeah. The, um, and I know that sounds very Christianese, but it, it also, to just uh, apply the word of God to every area of life, which was a very Puritan thing. And then you saw um, various people doing it, but you saw um, Abraham Kuyper really running this with sphere sovereignty. And then um, from him, Bavink, and then uh, Dewey Verd down to Van Til, and then these other guys, Rush Dooney. It's all kind of a same line down where the Word of God is supposed to be preached to everything, and everything is supposed to come under the Lordship of Jesus, and that's how you win. And plus, if you if you understand Jesus as the one God and mediator between man and God, then you can't be bought off with their money, and you can't be bought off with whatever it is that they're offering you because they're not your mediator. Jesus is your mediator. And that, that is where the church needs to go back to. And, you know, I think politics and um, that sort of thing, the reason why uh, the church oftentimes is, uh, doesn't want to touch it is because they, it's, um, it's something that they think they can still have autonomy from God. It's kind of like why a lot of people hate Calvinism to begin with, because it removes some of their personal power or some of their own autonomy because they realize that it wasn't them, that it's been grace. And 
politics is kind of this thing where oh I god think it's more yeah it's usually emotional reaction i think yeah. but god god anyway. doesn't touch politics um you know what i mean that's still something that's just mine and i can kind of do whatever i want there god's not in charge of what i do there and if, i think but, that's part of the why but if theology is informs your outlook on the world then it can't not give you right. a theologically informed opinion about mm-hmm. anything yeah and the more i i read uh james jordan in particular and even the more i'm trying to uh, dive into Rush Dooney or these uh, these Dutch reform guys um, is that is this idea of word and life like you're you're saturated by the Bible and then it applies to all of life and you know Dewey Verd had this idea of uh, the the cause what do you call it cosmonomic uh, philosophy there's a law in this world and that there's no area that's untouched by you know God's work and like we said, that includes politics, money, education, entertainment, uh, everything. There's no neutral ground. I think Van Til was the one that constantly said there's no neutrality. And Bonson came after him and said the same thing over and over again. And that's. I think what we have to remember yeah. is that while we do need to infiltrate these places, it can't be just mere uh, natural strategy. It has to be. Uh, there has to be a supernatural work. I mean, hearts have to be being transformed. Right, yeah. It's, yeah, the, the gospel has to be preached. Right, yeah, yes. for sure. From the highways and byways. So, so right. answer, like, somebody who just comes in and uh, is like, I heard Rush, uh, uh, Rush Juni was bad or... Um, Lightheart or James Jordan. I mean, and they're three different guys. So that mm-hmm. are three different uh, answers probably for each one of them. But how would you explain that they're all right? Because in your view, they're all right. And I'm, I don't, I honestly don't know. I think they're brilliant. I like a lot of <laughs> the, the things uh, that I've read that they write and they're, yeah. I have a book by Lightheart right here on Constantine. I, one over mm-hmm. there on Theodore Dostoevsky. I mean, he's a, a brilliant dude. But anyway, I'm just not sure. Uh, I I can't um, post quotes of theirs in good confidence because they're so controversial. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I care what people think. If anybody knows anything about me, I don't. You don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do, but uh, yeah. I won't let that stop me. And uh, I... But I want to um, refer people, you know, to sound uh, sources and be sure, confident that that yeah. they are. Well, my first um, my first question, if somebody asked me that, would be, "What have you read by them?" Um, uh-huh. Right. And so, if they, oh, I just heard that, then I'd be like, "Okay, this is a much different conversation." Now, if they've read some stuff, I haven't read everything from those three guys. Um, That'd be cool if I get to one day, but I know enough about each one to be able to tell them, uh, you know, here might be some concerning areas, um, but I would love rather to highlight the good things. I don't know anybody that teaches through Genesis better than James Jordan. And it's, 
I mean, it's mind boggling because nobody teaches these stories like he does. And you think, oh, it's just Genesis. Go listen to James Jordan, read his book, Primeval Saints, and the way you look at Genesis will be turned upside down. And it affects the whole rest of the Bible. Um, Lightheart has an Old Testament survey book I just finished, and it's fantastic. I, them on the Old Testament is, I don't, I don't know anybody better. And then with someone like Rush Dooney, what, what people have said is his ability to dice up culture and show you its idols, um, no one does it better. With, with, uh, with, with a word in life um, reformed worldview. And then obviously, no one has written Institutes of Biblical Law. Like he, he did three massive volumes writing just on the law of God. And it's just something that no one does. And so I would love to highlight the reasons to read um, and then tell them, you know, I don't agree with everything, but, you know, use wisdom, be discerning, and don't stop reading your Bible. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I would tell them. But I definitely would wonder what they read. That would be my first, my first question, though, to mm-hmm. get into the God conversation. Right. Well, from I haven't uh, uh, read a lot of their uh, stuff, but what I would say is that if I guess uh, yeah, I think that's only Christian and fair to give them a chance and not make a judgment unless you've read it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to go, I guess I go off the opinion of guys that are smarter than me. And <laughs> in the past, I, I read Scott Clark's blogs on Federal Vision. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. Um, but I didn't ever uh, accept his criticism, even though when I would read that one blog, he'd write, be like, okay, this guy really seems sure. Right. And, uh, but I didn't ever give him my full confidence because I like never heard the other side of the story. And whenever I would, it always seemed so vague. And I knew that this was a vast subject that would, would, would require, you know, days of study or weeks of mm-hmm. study to really, uh, get a hold of. But, uh, so to, kind of, I guess, accelerate my learning and try to get somewhat of a discerning answer. I go, see, uh, I thought James uh, Doug Wilson in in a video recommended this three-part series by Stephen Wedgworth. Yep. And he said that if anyone was going to write on a book on this stuff, it should be him. Mm-hmm. And so basically he said he writes like a journalist, like a like an objective journalist who isn't taking sides. And he he was with Federal Vision for a time and then left it. So he kind of watched it uh, progress from its inception. Yeah. And uh, when it's endorsed by Wilson, then I I think it it sounds fair. And yeah, I saw Wilson to it. Yeah. And I saw Wilson's talk with James White and I just don't think it's fair for us to keep throwing stones at somebody. Um, but Agreed. Yeah. But at the same time, this article by 
Stephen Wedgworth puts James Jordan and Peter Lightheart. It seems he puts them in a different camp, mm-hmm. which for me uh, is disappointing. Yeah, my my recommendation for people on that is to just go to their sources, like go and listen to James Jordan's lectures. You can subscribe to the Theopolis Institute uh, podcast feed. Lightheart's on there a lot. Um, Jordan's on there a lot. His his lectures they're they're like Sunday school classes basically, and he's uh, almost done with Genesis. But you can go back the last like three years and get it all. And I would say, go, uh, you know, I would encourage people go there first. Don't um, don't take a blog for its you know uh, as the final word. Um, go listen to it for yourself. You know, listen to mm-hmm. a few lectures and and uh, do some right source there but hey i'm gonna have to run i think dinner's done it smells okay. super good and uh well we i should wanted to ask again, about man. one um, yeah uh i wanted to ask one real thing real quick so you have a new position at a church right yep uh shortly here i will be associate pastor up in canada in canada it's gonna but be but you're fun. in new york city right now right yep we are in brooklyn Okay, and then you're going to move to Canada after you're done in the army in another four months. Uh, well, we'll we'll get to leave here in just a, about over a month. Canada, they're really gender confused there. <laughs> well, I don't know if we're any worse or better. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, it was great talking to you. Yeah. Have a great dinner. You too. Hey, thanks, man, and mm-hmm. uh, everybody. Uh, Be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, uh, knowing that your work is not in vain. And until next time, get woke.